Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. <laughs> I'm a bit tired. Uh, I was up through the night doing the uh, election show on Times Radio, then was back on at 10 o'clock. So uh, in a moment, we'll be able to hear from the uh, economist panel picking over the results as they were when we were chatting. But it's a big thing on the podcast today. Uh, you'll remember uh, a few weeks ago, we did our series, uh, the Sunday shows at 50, looking back at the uh, political shows on a Sunday morning. Well, there's a new show in town on a Sunday night. Andrew Neil launches a new Sunday political show on Sunday night on Channel 4. So I caught up with him to ask him about his new show and the state of politics generally and the state of politicians. So that's coming up as our big thing. But first, let's pick over the results uh, of the elections uh, as they were, as we hit the record button. Uh, it's time for this. Just that's on all. We speak to two of our favourite economists. And on Friday, of course, James Forsyth, Times Economist, Spectator, Political Editor. Morning, James. Morning, Matt. Uh, no money read this morning, but uh, we've got Rachel Cunliffe from the New States. Morning, Rachel. Good morning. Let's, uh, you're very chipper, Rachel. You, you, you don't sound like someone who's pulled an all-nighter. I did not pull an all-nighter. I was in bed by 11. Oh, I'm very civilised. What about you, James? Uh, I got up at 5am, so uh, that was my, 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 my cheat. That's your, that's your nod to uh, the significance of the events. Um, uh, your first takeaway, then. What's the, what's the thing that's caught your eye, James, from what we've seen so far? I think this is a none of the above result. Um, the voters clearly wanted to give the Tories a kicking uh, over kind of cost of living and party gate. Uh, but they're clearly not. They, I, don't, I don't think you can take from these results a massive public yearning for uh, a Labour government with Keir Starmer as prime minister. But I think the real thing that should worry the Tories about these results is two things. Uh, for, first of all, um, I think you could you could say these results are a normal midterm fair if it wasn't for the fact that there is just so much bad news coming down the track between now and the next election. You know, just look at what the Bank of England was saying about the economy yesterday. And, and so, I mean, that, that is the risk for the Tories, that, you know, that, that usual thing that, 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 that the arc of the Parliament means, you know, governments come in, do the tough stuff, become unpopular, and then things get better um, in the run-up to the next election might not apply this time round. And, and the second worry for the Tories is that they are uncoalitionable. Um, for Labour to kick the Tories out of office, they don't need to win a majority or even be the largest party. They just need to stop the Tories from getting above 320 seats. And I think that the worry for the Tories is, you know, they're losing some to the Lib Dems in the South, some to Labour in London. You know, I, I, the danger is that they, they end up below 320 and just can't stay in office because they've got no one to prop them up. 
and you have that, I suppose, the, the, the sort of momentum and the when we saw it in in back, way way back in 2010, the Lib Dems felt that the Conservatives are the ones who made the gains, and they were the what you know they were the biggest party, and they were the ones that they should uh, to speak to first. And you wonder whether that might be repeated in the sort of mirror form next time. Uh, what about you, Rachel? What's caught your eye? Uh, I think Jane's broadly right and that it's nuanced. So I didn't stay up all night, but my new statesman colleague, Ben Walker, did. And he's got, he's been live blogging it, which is real political nerdery. Uh, and he says basically it, it, it's nuanced, right? So great results for, for, for Labour in London. And we, I, I know everyone likes to dismiss London because, oh, we talk too much about London. Let's not bother mentioning it. We probably should mention Wandsworth and Barnet and Westminster historic Tory councils, Margaret Thatcher's favourite council that, that Labour have taken. I really um, wish I'd put Margaret Thatcher's favourite council on our local election bingo. Um, <laughs> because it's it's come up more than anything else. Well, I think. Everyone thinks it's Wandsworth, but, you know, I think Barnet, you know, she was the MP in, in Finchley near Barnet. That's where I grew up. I think that was probably her secret favourite, but not, you know, she's, we'll, we'll never know, I guess, what her actual favourite council was. Um, but the, the, the narrative that Labour have done badly everywhere else isn't really true. I mean, they, they, they won the three uh, Cumberland uh, new councils, uh, which includes, obviously, Workington. If you think about Workington Man 2019, the Tories are going to take that demographic. Uh, very obviously a, a turnaround there, which I think is telling. Also, it kind of feels a bit, and I don't want to speak too soon, that Brexit isn't as much of a dividing line now because, OK, Labour haven't managed to reclaim the Red Wall, but they have made gains in leave voting areas and I think it's probably because we're kind of done with Brexit now because there's a cost of living crisis going on and it's not the kind of I don't necessarily like the Tories but I need to get Brexit done momentum that it was in in, in 2019 which I would say probably should worry the Tories a little bit because it was Brexit that was holding that quite quite weird, broad coalition together, wasn't it? And actually, James, we've seen that a lot. I mean, particularly at PMQs, where, where both parties like to sort of try out uh, the various political attack lines. That Boris Johnson's attacks on uh, Keir Starmer still focus quite heavily on Jeremy Corbyn, who Keir Starmer's kicked out of the party, and Brexit, uh, which by the time of you know we get to 2024, we eight years since that, that vote happened. A lot of water under the bridge then. And you do wonder if... if if that very retrospective uh, strategy just isn't going to wash with voters. Yeah, no, I think Boris Johnson would love to fight a kind of keep Brexit done election in 2024. <laughs> but I think the kind of salience of Brexit is just not going to be there then. I think that, you know, uh, I think I think I think that Labour will be able to. I mean, unless they do something spectacularly politically incompetent, they should be able to sidestep the Brexit question quite effectively um and i think you know i think you'll find see the tories trying to find ways to kind of to kind of get the issue back up the agenda but i don't think the next election will be decided by brexit i think the problem for the tories is that in 2019 they won essentially on two things you know get brexit done and keep jeremy corbyn out and they've lost both of those things and the, the problem for them about losing corbyn is there were lots of tory voters uh in constituencies that voted not massively but mildly to remain um who who were maybe not hugely enthusiastic about the the turn the tories had taken under boris johnson but the threat of jeremy corbyn as prime minister you know kept them in line you know how did the tories hold seats like winchester and cheltenham it's because voters there weren't prepared to risk voting lib dem when that could end up with Jeremy Corbyn as Prime Minister and John McDonnell as Chancellor. You can say many things about Keir Starmer, and you, you do in your show, Matt, but um, you can't say that he's scary. 
I don't think that the idea of the Tories kind of threatening people with Keir Starmer and Rachel Reeves is not going to make voters who are unhappy with the Tories feel that they have to kind of hold their nose and vote for them. I suppose you go. You actually go back to when the Tories started to do that with Tony, early Tony Blair, the devil eyes and all of that. It just didn't. You know that those sort of attacks need to be grounded in a bit of reality. And if voters say, "Well, that's just not," he's dull. He might be unexciting, but he's not a sort of scary prospect. Um, Rachel, what have you made? Um, it's interesting. And I'm actually quite interested in the sort of the New Statesman view of this. Is that the left vote is you know if, if the Tories are having a bad time, actually the left vote seems to be going in three directions. The Lib Dems and the Greens are clearly a, a force that we need to pay more attention to. Yeah, I think it's 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 sort of fair to characterise this in a way of it being uh, Tory versus anyone but the Tories, uh, and and you've seen that um, the the Lib Dems making gains in places that uh, again leave areas, the Greens making gains kind of everywhere. Both the Lib Dems and the Greens are quite good at fighting on local policy issues. Uh, the Lib Dems are sort of a machine when it comes to parachuting themselves into an area and saying whatever you don't like about your incumbent MP or councillor, you know we're against that, whatever that is. Uh, and I think that will be very very key in in the by elections in in Wakefield and uh, Tiverton and Honiton. Uh, thanks to Neil Parrish, yay! Uh, just getting some, some some good tractor representation on your show. Um, that's that's going to be key. The other thing that I think is is sort of worth mentioning is the uh, collapse in support for the Tories in areas with high graduate populations. So not just London, which again no one likes talking about London, but Manchester, Liverpool, Newcastle, Norwich, Oxford, and Cambridge. Um, anywhere that there's a high graduate population, the, the Tory vote has plummeted, which kind of makes sense when you consider the fact that the Tories have raised the marginal graduate tax rates are over 40% and seem sort of intent on any time they need extra money, oh, let's let's screw over students and, and, and recent graduates. And by the way, no, you can't have homes and no, we're not going to do anything about it. Here, have a national insurance tax increase. And I'm sorry, but people are voting according to that. And I guess that's a bit worrying for the Conservatives, because if you think about graduates, OK, they're, they're, they're lefty liberal students now, but eventually you'd, you'd want them to have good jobs and settle down and have homes and vote conservatives like their parents and grandparents did and that trend seems to have been disrupted uh, and actually james it goes the, the interesting thing particularly on the lib dem uh front you're talking about you know brexit is is no longer the the big defining uh factor we've seen the lib dems you know they've, they've won in hull uh big leave voting area albeit one of the lib dems um have history there's talk of them taking uh they seem very confident about taking somerset large parts of somerset uh were, were leave voting um, um, and, and so that, that again shows that the, the political terrain that the Conservatives are so confident in fighting on in 2019 might just not exist come the next election. Yeah, and I think also the Lib Dems are detoxified post-coalition now. You know, I think they are they are now they are now back to their 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 role as being a you know, protest vote party. If you are if you are if you haven't quite if you are crossed with the incumbents and you haven't quite decided what you're going to do vote Lib Dem is a kind of safe option. And I think that they, they are succeeding in, in doing that. Uh, I think, you know, I think you, you also, I think Rachel's right, the kind of worry for the Tories is that you are beginning to see patterns of kind of tactical voting where people look around and say, right, who is most likely to beat the Tories here? I'll vote for them. And I think that the Tories would like to run a campaign in 2024 
where they squeeze um, voters in much the way that they did in 2015, which is, you know, get 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 ready for pictures of, you know, Keir Starmer in Nicola Sturgeon's pocket, you know, warnings <laughs> about, you know, coalitions of chaos, you know, every Lib Dem spring conference resolution about, you know, closer integration with the single market being dug up to suggest that this will become Labour's um, Brexit policy if they end up in government with the Lib Dems, you know. Uh, but I think the problem, the worry for the Tories is that you might be seeing something that you saw in 97, which massively exacerbated the Tory losses, where voters basically have a look around in their in their constituency and then vote for the anti-Tory candidate. And yeah, and I suppose that that's the thing, isn't it? That, you know, it's a repeat of what we saw in 97, you know, in large parts of the country, if you wanted to, quote, get the Tories out, that vote meant voting Lib Dem in some, you know, and uh, voters can work that out quite often. It doesn't need a formal pact between the uh, the Liberal Democrats and the Labour Party. Uh, really good to speak to you both. I know there's um, there's plenty more to pick over uh, for the rest of the day. That was Rachel Cunliffe from the New Statesman and James Forsyth from the Times. Of course, you can read James in the Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash times red box. Up next is my chat with Andrew Neil. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. Andrew Neil, you've done Sunday morning politics. You've done weekday lunchtime politics. You tried, albeit briefly, on GB News weekday evening politics. And now, uh, with your new show, The Andrew Neil Show on Channel 4, you're doing Sunday evening politics. How will this be different to all the ones that have come before? But you missed out late night politics on a Thursday night. Oh, that's true. <laughs> late, late night politics. You have literally done them all. It's the only, it's the only which spot left. with the best rated show of them all. So yeah. so well rated that the BBC wouldn't give it a better shot in the schedules than 11.30 at night. Uh, some nights we went on so late, I thought we were going to be the lead into breakfast television, but that's another story. <laughs> um, the six o'clock time slot uh, on a Sunday is unusual for British uh political news kind of feels broadcasting but that's what makes it a plus it means that we've we've got that space to ourselves there are no competitors there are plenty of points in the tv and radio schedule which are crowded with uh, news shows uh we get this to ourselves and it turns out it's um it, it's a pivotal point in the week because as you know sunday newspapers are an important part of the british news cycle they are now followed by the Sunday morning television and radio shows, which add to that new cycle. So my idea will be to pick up off the back of that. Uh, so we know what's in the Sunday papers. We know how the Sunday shows have treated them. And by early Sunday evening, we'll have a pretty good idea of how the Monday papers are going to throw the story on. So it puts us in a pretty good position to look back at the week, sweep that up, get done what's been done, and then look forward to the upcoming week. And it's a good point you make. That, uh, news junkies on a su- Sunday morning, there's loads of it around. But you, you know, this weekend you're up against, what, the BAFTAs, Planet Earth, the Chase Celebrity Special, and, uh, and the film School of Rock. So if you're into the news, this is 
this is the right sort of um, place to be. I suppose, who have you got on? Can you tell me who your first guest is? No, I can't yet. Uh, we're, we're keeping that quiet for the moment, I'm afraid. Uh, what we've decided to, to do, though, is that we are only going to do major interviews with major political figures. Uh, we're, I mean, one of the reasons in the end I stopped doing the Sunday politics uh, on BBC One was that we were only getting the minister for paperclips. Uh, and it was just too, it was just not worth the candle, uh, frankly. Uh, and so if we're offered the minister for paperclips, we're going to say no. I would rather have intelligent discussion among uh, well-informed, serious commentators. And the two we have on Sunday are Madeleine Grant from The uh, Telegraph and Pippa Crayer from The Mirror. They'll be joining me for the launch show and I hope joining me uh, in a number of weeks in the 10-week run that we have. We've got a, a, a big well-known name lined up but I just need to nail it down for sure. For some reason, uh, politicians are a bit apprehensive about coming on the shows <laughs> that I do. So I just want to make sure we've got them uh, before I go public on it. But my point is that I'm not allowing the politicians to hold us hostage. I think what, what I discovered with uh, uh, Abbott and Patillo on this week and with the podcast that I'm doing now uh, for Tortoise that and as, as we did with spectator tv too during the the lockdown people rather than having a second rate minister come on with just talking points to regurgitate and reiterate they'd rather have really well-informed analysis of what's going on from journalists who know their stuff so that's what we do unless we get a big name and it was interesting you mentioned the podcast i listened to the david petraeus one and having someone who has been there and done that but is out of it now with the freedom to actually say what he really thinks and be a bit more self-reflective. You're right, it's much better than having a middle-ranking minister that who isn't going to say anything. And it requires a different kind of interview from the ones that I'm most done or most associated with, which is the robust holding ministers to account or, or holding people who want runners to, to account. Uh, with uh, with someone like General Petraeus or Fiona Hill, the uh, the yeah. woman from the north of England who uh, ended up advising three U.S. presidents uh, on Russia, rather than kind of holding them to account because they're not in power now, it's a more conversational style. It's trying to elicit information from them. You know what what's it like in the Kremlin? You know how do you read the performance of the Russian troops in Ukraine as a general who has. Uh, being in Iraq and Afghanistan and so on. That's a, that's a less robust, not, not to mean we don't kind of push them, but it's a more conversational, more uh, a, a, an information, an interview designed to try and get information out of people rather than show up, which we sometimes do and rightly to do it, that they don't know what the hell they're talking about. <laughs> it, does that mean you're going soft or you've had to change your approach? Oh, I've been soft in the head for years. Uh, <laughs> no, I think it, 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 look, it's different horses for different courses. You know, n not every interview has to be or should be a sort of Paxman-esque thrashing. You know, there are, there, there's the place for that. And believe me, I've done it. I think it was the, you know, my most famous interview of all times, the career most famous is one that never happened. Uh, with uh, with Mr. Johnson in the 2019 general election of December that uh, that year, and I think the reason he wanted to avoid it was he had 
First of all, he hadn't done too well when I interviewed him for the Tory leadership contest uh, previously. And then he had seen the kind of interviews I'd done with Jeremy Corbyn and with Nicola Sturgeon. But not into every interview needs to be like that. And I think when you speak to a General Petraeus or a Fiona Hill or figures like that, you change the technique yeah. uh, a bit. You're not really holding them to account. You're trying for the listener or the viewer, as you do in your show, to get the best of their expertise. After all, that's why people are listening. They're not listening because it's you or me. They're listening because we are interviewing someone who knows what they're talking about. And the listener or the viewer want to hear what they have to say. Do you think, and when we did the, the series on the Sunday shows, there was a there was a bit of a divide in the people I spoke to. There was some who, I think there was a little bit of rose-tinted glasses. It was all better in the good old days when everyone answered every question and fully engaged and, and gave an honest response. Do you think there has been a shift in in the politicians, uh, the, 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 the calibre or the character of the politicians you've been interviewing? I mean, you're someone who wants to do in-depth, long-form interviews, but the political culture now is very shallow and short-termist. Well, there were no good old days for a start. <laughs> um, and, you know, Sunday morning political shows are, are a relatively new uh, procedure uh, in uh, British broadcasting. I mean, in America, they go way back to the early 1950s. I mean, the longest running Sunday morning political show in the world is Meet the Press on NBC, yeah. uh, which I think been running from the early 50s. Uh, we didn't start until Weekend World, started yeah. by ITV, like most major innovations. People don't realize this. Most major innovations in news did not come from the BBC, wonderful institution that it is. It actually came from ITV or from Sky. Uh, uh, you know, the, the first half hour of a news broadcast. That was ITM, not the BBC. Presenters on air who were actually reading the news. Who would have thought that was a good idea? That was ITV. Until then, the BBC read the news against cards, against pictures, and so on. And it was ITV that introduced the Sunday morning show. And, of course, it was Weekend World was the most famous of that. And Brian Walden made his name there. He had the time to do it, the setup to do it as well. I, I would say, the, nevertheless, that it's tougher to, there are, put it this way, Matt, there are fewer and fewer frank, front rank politicians with whom it is worth doing a long in-depth interview. I mean, I'm afraid on both front benches for the moment, the talent just isn't there in depth. There are talented people, around Boris Johnson and around Keir Starmer, but it's not there in depth. You only have to look at both run benches to see that. Or look at, you know, no need to be partisan about this at all. Look at the quality of Margaret Thatcher's cabinets and look at the quality of Tony Blair's cabinets as well. I mean, you take the Blair cabinet in 1997, I don't think one of them had been in government before, certainly not in the major positions, but they were of a high quality People yeah. felt they were able to run the country, and they were. You interviewed Jack Straw, or John Reid, Gordon Brown, David Blunkett, you know, need I go on? You don't have many people up there of that caliber. And so therefore, you're right, it makes that long-form interview steeped in fact, holding people to account, tougher to do, which is why, unless we get the people of caliber on the Andrew Neil show, I'm not going to do it. Why do you think the caliber has gone down? Is it because we treat politicians so badly? Uh, is it because they, you know, MPs' expenses, you know, the shenanigans over Brexit, the abuse on social media, all of that? 
um, it's a strange sort of person who'd go into politics now, isn't it? I mean, I think there are times when we do treat uh, politicians badly or unnecessarily so. I, I mean, I, I watched the sort of backlash that occurred only in the last couple of days because the prime minister didn't know who Lorraine was. You know, of course, we know who Lorraine is and she's a national treasure. She happens to come from the same part of the country <laughs> I do. So that makes her a double national treasure uh, uh, as well. But it is not the end of the world because the prime minister doesn't know the name of a, uh, of a daytime TV star. I speak as a former daytime <laughs> presenter. You know, it's not the end of the world if somebody, if, if a high politician doesn't know who we are. So I think sometimes... We're a little stupid on that. But I think the other reason is that, you know, it used to be, I mean, first of all, this is a kind of serious point, that, that up until the 60s, most politicians and, uh, and indeed, I think nearly all prime ministers up until the mid-60s had been bloodied by war. Uh, they had been in the trenches like Harold Macmillan or they had fought against the Nazis like uh, Ted Heath and Dennis Healy. Clem Attlee, Prime Minister after the war, was medevaced twice out of Gallipoli in World War I, Major Attlee, as he was often called. Uh, these people had seen the worst. They'd seen the kind of things that are currently happening in Ukraine. And I think that gave them a seriousness of purpose, and I think it also gave them a status regardless of their, their politics. That generation has come and gone. Probably the Thatcher cabinet with Lord Carrington and Willie Whitelaw and so on was the last uh, of that. And then we moved on more to the, uh, and so what could then happen was that you could have a career elsewhere, like Peter Walker in the city, or like numerous uh, labor, labor ministers who became labor ministers in trade unions doing wage negotiations, looking after workers' conditions, and then move into politics. We've kind of professionalized now and made a career of politics. So you almost know, it's almost compulsory that you've been to university, actually correct that, been to one particular university, uh, correct that, been to one or two colleges in that particular <laughs> university. You come out, mummy and daddy are usually reasonably well healed, so you can take an internship somewhere in a think tank in Westminster for peanuts or for nothing. You can then work your way up to a job as a special advisor. You run, challenge a seat that you lose, you get in second time, and you're on the slippery pole on the way up. You have first mover advantage. It's I'm thinking of the likes of the two Miliband brothers, George Osborne, Nick Clegg, all these kind of, uh, of names. It's much harder to, to now come in because these people have first mover advantage. And I think that unnecessarily filters the available talent. You're not really made welcome if you try and come in from the outside in your late 30s or 40s. If you were offered, and I don't know who you've got on on Saturday, but if it, if it was, you know, Keir Starmer or Boris Johnson say they'll come on, does that fill you with excitement or a sense of dread? Both, I think, <laughs> excitement and excitement because you know you've got the biggest name in the Conservative Party, or uh, as an alternative, the biggest name in the Labour Party. Uh, actually, Keir Starmer wouldn't fill me with dread because that'd be a more typical uh, interview. I'd just do my homework and try and hold him to account. 
on on various issues and try to understand what he really stands for, because most of what he stood for to get elected as Labour leader, he no longer stands for. When I interviewed him when he was running for Labour leadership, he was doing so pretty much on a straight Corbynite ticket. Well, where has that gone? That'd be interesting to, to see. Boris Johnson would fill me more with dread too, because so much would be hanging on it. There will be people out there not content unless I get up out of the desk, walk round and smash his head on the table. Uh, that's the kind of stupidity that you get on social media these days, that you're not being tough enough unless you do that. And he is really difficult to interview. As we saw with Susanna on Good Morning Britain, he has that old, what in America they call the filibuster, just play for time. I ask you about oranges. Well, let me tell you about apples, because I've got a lot of apples to tell you about. And he's ticking down the clock. And you have to interrupt. You have to get stuck in. You have to stop that. Otherwise, it becomes a monologue. But in doing so, people then say, oh, you're rude. You didn't let him speak. You didn't let him talk. So it's a difficult tightrope to uh, to maneuver. But hell, would you want to do it? That's that's why we're here. Of course, we would. <laughs> so this this new show, how does it, do you think it ranks against everything you've, you've done before? And do you hope this is going to sort of draw a line under the GB News experience? <laughs> well, I've already drawn a line under the GB <laughs> News, and I think GB News has already drawn a line under me. So we can we can move on uh, to to that. It's uh, I mean it's a it, it's a year from when we were building up to the launch of GB News, and it was a terrible time. I can see the writing on the wall where I would now early May. I can see it actually in April, and I tried to articulate that, but nobody would listen. I approached this in a far different mood. I mean, <laughs> we've got, I've got a studio with lights, a microphone that works, a beautiful set, fantastic production team. Though I have to say the production team at GB News are very good. It wasn't their fault. It looked the way it did. Um, I don't know where it right. If, if, it, if it's a huge failure, then it'll be a small blip. I was never on Channel 4. What did you think of that? Uh, how did you manage to work that out? If it's a great success, then obviously it's far more important to me than GB News. We're going to give it our all. It's a chance to do something a bit different. I hope we can, we, you know, you've brought humour to politics. I think sometimes we don't know enough of it. But these are serious times, and so we have to be serious, but it doesn't mean to say we can't crack a smile as well. I was very amused at the... Um, you know, with all this expenses scandal. I mean, in addition to Mr. Johnson not knowing who Lorraine was, we've uh, had memories back of the expenses scandal recently from France now, where yes. a, a, a member of the National Assembly, the French Assembly, France's parliament, has been claiming a lingerie <laughs> on um, expenses. So, you know, we can have a bit of fun. Yeah, that, that, that makes, what was it, John Prescott's loose seat, pale in comparison, really, uh, lingerie. <laughs> yes, on the, exactly, on exactly. And given everything you've been doing, what, half a century now you've been doing journalism of, of one kind or another, um, which is the, which was the, is editing a Fleet Street newspaper still the, the, does anything compare to that in terms of sort of influence and fun and power and control? Or, or and, and have those days gone now, do you think? Well, those days might have gone, but when I was doing that, I was editor of the Sunday Times from 1983 to the end of 1994, 11 years. Uh, And there is nothing to compare to being editor of a well-resourced, 
well-recognized, prestigious uh, newspaper, and like the Sunday Times, along with the New York Times, Sunday edition, the two best known Sunday newspapers in the world. And in these days, with incredible resources, entirely separate from the Times. Yeah. You know, we had our own bureaus across the world, all our own separate editorial team. There was very little linkage with the Times because the economic... The economics in the days didn't demand it. You know, yeah. we, you know, when I left the Sunday Times, it was making a million pounds a week. You know, that's a lot of money for a paper yeah. coming out one day a week. 16 pages of classified jobs advertising. All of that allowed me. I remember, uh, I think it was 1984, there were huge events in Lebanon and in Libya. Uh, Ronald Reagan had dispatched troops. They got blown up, if you remember. There were scores of Marines dead. I mean, I was de de deploying eight reporters here, five reporters there, photographers there, getting uh, uh, models made, cartography. You know, you just covered it. Uh, not that money didn't matter when you're working for Rupert Murdoch, but we had the money. We had the money to do it. And people took notice. You had the ability to move the dial, to shift, you know, when we revealed the secrets of Israel's nuclear arsenal, that was a global story that resonated around the globe. Indeed, the Israeli Secret Service, Mossad, ended up kidnapping uh, our main source for that story. So no, nothing com com compares with that. That was uh, undoubtedly the great 11 uh, years of my life. Do you think now we have a sort of news, political news sort of overload? It's everywhere all the time, but it's all a bit the same. You know, morning, noon and night, you could be watching political programmes of one, you know, an explosion of channels, GB News, Talk TV, um, you, you know, Sky News are doing these sort of big interview programmes as well. Is it too much of it? There, there is probably too much of it at the moment. And that's partly because the technology allows it to happen. Yeah. Uh, you know, there are so many platforms. I, I first cottoned on to this as to how you can... You can repurpose the same content for all these different platforms. About three years ago, I did a long interview with Malcolm Turnbull, the former Prime Minister of Australia, an old uh, friend of mine, because we had fought the battle to publish Spycatcher together. Uh, he had been the QC to get it published in, uh, in Sydney, and he helped us when the government tried to put me in jail for publishing it in this country. So we did that long interview. We actually, in the end, because we, we didn't know we were so enjoying the interview, it lasted for 40 minutes. So what do you do? It was a pre-record. So what we did was we sliced and diced that interview into little chunks of 90 seconds to two minutes and put it out on digital platforms. We then edited it down to 20 minutes and put it out to broadcast uh, television. We then put the whole 40 minutes on the web, which allowed people who wanted to see it all to see it, but it was also a test of our ethics that people could see that we hadn't taken the 40 minutes and edited the 20 down in a yeah. way that distorted what had actually happened. And I think that's a wonderful way of doing it. It's horses for courses. If you've only got a 90 second appetite for Malcolm Turnbull and me, take it. If you've got the 40 minutes, take it. Now that allows us to do all sorts of things. What will happen is it will be winnowed out. We're seeing broadcasters take advantage of the platforms, Talk TV, GB News, Times Radio, uh, do, doing new shows. They, they now realize that in a world of streaming, news is the one thing networks can still do that streamers don't do. 
Uh, and it's the thing that still rates big in America, uh, up against the streamers. Drama, not so much. Documentary, not so much either. But news can be done. The market will sort it out. Over time, people will go to what they like, what they trust, what they want to hear. And people who are doing it now that don't have the luck or the competence to attract that, they'll go out of business or they'll pair back uh, what they're doing. Hey, listen, we're journalists. We should take advantage of this plethora. I know, about, it's a good uh, time. As long as we can, because it won't always be there. Yeah, it's a good time. It's a good time. A good uh, time. Just finally then, with your, with your show, uh, your guest on Sunday to on site, who would you, who's your dream guest that you'd like to interview? And actually, even some, maybe even somebody who's not alive, someone who you'd always like to have, to have gone toe-to-toe with. Uh, well, obviously, getting the Prime Minister would be our dream guest in the current environment. Yeah. We're shooting for it. I'm not, you know, I'm not holding my breath or I might suffocate. <laughs> but he did Good Morning Britain in the past couple of days. So who, who knows, Matt? He might do this. Who would, you, who would I? I would love to have interviewed JFK. Yeah. That, I mean, that, you know, when you look back at uh, the stature of someone like him, uh, then that's the kind of person that would have been great to, to interview. Uh, and, you know, any, almost any American president in a way, because they are so important, not just to America, but to the rest of the world, particularly on this side of the Atlantic. They're so important. Uh, Donald Trump would be hard to say no to. Uh, I've met him several times, but I've never interviewed him. Um, again, I would treat that with some dread. Uh, but uh, how could you say no? Well, Andrew Neil, I'm glad that you said yes and, uh, and could join us. Thanks. <laughs> Best of luck with the show on Sunday. It's uh, the Andrew Neil Show, 6 o'clock on Channel 4 on Sunday night. But Andrew Neil, thanks so much for joining us on Times Radio. Right, you're very kind. I love your radio show too. And the road show is fantastic. I may have to steal one or two of your jokes if you don't mind. <laughs> you're very welcome to them. Very welcome. <laughs> Andrew, really good to see you. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.